Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report. I'm Brian Cardile. This week, as the U.S. Supreme Court begins its summer recess, Adam Winkler of UCLA School of Law will discuss how liberal justices and what has become a perhaps unexpected trend helped render a number of pro-business rulings over the past term. And John Eastman from Chapman University Fowler School of Law will walk us through some anticipatory posturing laid out by justices during the term, jurisprudential discursions that Eastman says the justices may very well be writing to help bolster their eventual rulings in next term's immigration law battles. Among them, of course, the fight over President Trump's executive order temporarily banning travel from certain Muslim-majority countries. Eastman will describe what signals court watchers can glean from these various nuances in the court's dicta. But first, two state court cases drew attention this week. One, a divided ruling in the California Supreme Court, keeping broad discretion in the hands of judges hearing Prop 36 Three Strikes Reform Act resentencing petitions, and thus rendering resentencing under that act more elusive. In that matter, justices decided that language from Prop 47, a subsequent ballot measure providing resentencing to another class of prisoners, and including precise and limiting language about just when resentencing can be denied, did not bear on judges' decisions regarding three strikes petitioners. Michael Romano, lecturer at Stanford Law School, who co-authored both Propositions 36 and 47, says that the latter measure was drafted precisely with the idea that it would add some clarity to the more nebulous standard in Prop 36. Proposition 36 says that folks who are serving a life sentence for non-serious, non-violent crime are entitled to be released unless the government can prove that they are, quote, an unreasonable risk of danger to public safety. The statute itself does not define what that means. And for years, judges throughout the state, you know, for a couple of years as Proposition 36 was unrolling, the Three Strikes Format, were applying different legal standards to that question. So in some counties, for example, in L.A., the judge said uh, a danger that somebody might get out and commit a property crime is sufficient to find you an unreasonable risk of danger to public safety, for example. In other counties, they were saying, no, that means danger to commit a violent crime. So that's where Prop 36 stood when we began drafting Proposition 47. Proposition 47 includes the exact same uh, release mechanism as Proposition 36. I mean, it's literally cut and pasted from Proposition 36. It applies to a different universe of prisoners. Um, and when we were drafting it, we were aware of this different standard that was being applied in different counties in 36. So we put in, here's what unreasonable risk of danger of public safety means. And Proposition 47 says, unreasonable risk of danger of public safety, the phrase means, and then we said, as used throughout this code, throughout the penal code, means risk to commit, and then it specifies certain violent crimes that it means. Um, and the list is generous to to petitioners for a number of reasons, uh, not the least of which is is that both under after 36 and 47 passed is that nobody who was convicted after they were passed, you know, you were automatically released after serving 10 years. You could never get a life sentence for a non-serious, non-violent crime now. And so we wanted this standard to be quite generous as to people uh, getting out. So Proposition 47 includes a very discrete definition, means risk to commit one of these enumerated crimes. Proposition 36 does not define it, uh, but it uses the same exact phrase, unreasonable risk of danger to public safety. 
Romano filed an amicus brief arguing that the clear language of Prop 47 left no doubt that its standardized definition of unreasonable risk to public safety should apply to Prop 36 petitioners. But as he says, the court nonetheless deemed the initiative's language ambiguous. Argument was was straightforward. Um, We thought that the language in Proposition 47, which says, as used throughout this code, the definition of unreasonable risk of danger to public safety shall mean, and then risk to commit one of the specified crimes. And we argued and believed that the words as used throughout this code were plain and unambiguous. And that means that they applied throughout the entire penal code. Um, and obviously the way the court decision has come out, we were uh, mistaken. And, you know, I personally feel, you know, heartbroken and responsible for it. I'm the person who actually wrote those very words and believed I was being as explicit as possible to try to have a uniform definition of what that phrase meant in a way that would help, you know, both bring consistency to the law, but also um, help folks who we thought didn't deserve to be in prison have an opportunity to get out, except for those who are the most dangerous. Um, So our argument was a very plain, straightforward, plain meaning. Once the meaning is plain and unambiguous, the Supreme Court shall not go looking behind for any type of voter or legislative intent. And during oral argument uh, at the Supreme Court, the Attorney General even admitted that the the language was, or conceded that the language was clear and unambiguous. And when when they said that, I think everybody in the courtroom sort of took a a step back. I mean, they they certainly didn't concede that in their briefs. And and I I was like, oh, we, we... they just conceded. We just won the whole thing. And the court sort of said, well, are you giving up? And he says, and the, I forget who it was arguing for the attorney general's office. They said, no, it was drafter's error. They couldn't have possibly meant as applied throughout this, um, the penal code. They must have meant, uh, as applied throughout this act. So, you know, even the attorney general, uh, conceded that, that the language was clear and unambiguous. And once we got there, uh, you know, I thought we were confident. We, we were in very good shape to, to, to win the case. Again, obviously, I was mistaken. What was so surprising is the way that I felt like the majority opinion sort of bent over backwards to try to find ambiguity. And then once it finds ambiguity in the words as uh, applied throughout this code, then it could find whatever legislative intent uh, it wanted. And in looking through supporting documents and filings related to Prop 47, the court found what it deemed sufficient reason to doubt that Prop 47 really reflected the voters' intent that it reached beyond its own section to the rest of the penal code. The main argument that the court said was that nowhere in the campaign materials and the legislative history of Proposition 47 does it say anything about amending the standard or clarifying the standard of unreasonable risk of danger to public safety beyond Proposition 47 itself, meaning there's nothing in Proposition 47 that says it's going to affect the resentencing of three strikes uh, inmates. And they, you know, they went through the the 100-word ballot summary that's provided by the Attorney General, the two- or three-page legislative an- uh, analysis that's provided by the Legislative Analyst Office, and the official uh, ballot arguments for and against uh, Proposition 47, and pointed out that nowhere in any of that 
you know, official legislative history, is there any mention of amending uh, Proposition 36? So, therefore, um, there was no intent of the voters to uh, amend Proposition 36. Um, how they got to the question of whether there's an ambiguity in the first instance, I have, you know, a harder time explaining because I, I don't, I don't really follow their logic, but the words that they said was, if you read the uh, entire statute in context, then it becomes ambiguous about whether or not the phrase, as used throughout this code, really does mean as used throughout this code, because nowhere else in the statute does it reach beyond um, Prop 47 proceedings. So I guess that that's where they would initially find ambiguity, right? There's only one sentence in the in the statute that reaches beyond itself, which would be this one. Um, and therefore, there's ambiguity because the vo did the voters actually mean as used throughout this code? And then once they reached there, that there was ambiguity, they went to the, um, the legislative history and said, nowhere in the legislative history does it say um, we're, about, we're uh, amending the standard under Proposition 36. That's the court's reasoning. Um, I think it was really bending over backwards both to find uh, ambiguity and then furthermore legislative intent to not touch Proposition 36 because certainly there's nothing in the um, legislative history materials that say they're not amending Proposition 36. There's nothing contrary to that intent. Um, and it was just that in the very limited summary that's provided by the Attorney General and by the legislative analyst, I mean, it's only, it's, they're, they're prescribed by statute about how many words they can use and summarize in the statute, that they didn't describe every single feature of the, uh, the initiative. Um, the, the initiative itself describes every facet of itself, so it would just be repeating itself. So that, that's how the, the court came out. And, and, and uh, you know, I, I like to tell my students that the simpler argument always wins. Uh, doesn't matter how smart you are, the simpler argument wins. So again, I, I thought that we had a very straightforward, simple argument as used throughout this code is plain and unambiguous. Everybody agrees with that. And once you have plain and unambiguous statutory language, courts should really stop their interpretation there. You know, I thought it was one of the most um, shocking, disappointing, and, you know, intellectually dishonest opinions that I've read in a long time. What Romano sees here as undue jurisprudential gymnastics, he thinks could be explained by both political dynamics surrounding resentencing, which might incline judges to err on what they view as the safer side when considering releasing prisoners, and also the court's general aversion to the ballot initiative process that puts major policy decisions in the hands of the state's electorate. I think it's twofold. I think that there is uh, legislative animosity or fear. It's, it's more fear of uh, people in prison and getting them out and letting them out and having their uh, opportunity to uh, prove that they can successfully reintegrate to the society and the courts. Uh, you know, it's plain old um, tough on crime politics, and uh, which I actually think is out, outdated in terms of, you know, what is the real public opinion. But I do think that that's pervasive uh, in the courts. And number two, I think that there's also bias against voter initiatives. And that, and I think that that actually creeps into the, uh, to the opinion somewhat and saying that we don't trust, uh, the voters to, um, to vote on what they say that they've voted on and that they will, they are more willing to second guess 
you know, to legislate it from the bench, as it will, or to try to define some legislative intent that is uh, beyond the plain meaning of the of the of the statute when we're talking about uh, a voter initiative. I really suspect that they would have not done the same type of gymnastics, as it were, if it was an ordinary uh, statute passed by the legislature, notwithstanding plenty of Supreme Court law that says that they are to interpret uh, ballot measure language identically from the way that they should interpret legislation passed through the legislature. Now that the court has deemed Prop 47's language inapplicable to Prop 36 petitioners, any correction to that interpretation must come from the legislature. But Romano is not hopeful that such guidance is forthcoming and says he'll pursue other avenues to streamline Three Strikes Reform Act resentencing petitions, including seeking further judicial clarity about just what unreasonable risk means under Prop 36. The legislature could do it, but because it would be uh, amending an initiative it would require two-thirds vote, right? To the extent that this would be seen as amending uh, Proposition 36 and what the standard for unreasonable risk of danger to public safety means, it would require a two-thirds vote or a new initiative. So it's it's a heavy lift politically to, to do that. Um, it's something that we are definitely considering and may pursue. Um, so that's number one. Uh, number two is that um, the decision really leaves, continues to leave a, a, a hole as to what does unreasonable risk of danger to public safety mean, right? We now know, according to the court, it doesn't mean the Prop 47 standard, but then what does it mean? Does it mean risk to commit a violent crime, as some courts have held? Or does it mean risk to commit a property crime, as other courts have held? Does it mean risk to commit a drug crime? Uh, we have a client that's, uh, you know, he was a drug addict, and the court ruled, uh, well, once a drug addict, always an addict. We, we sort of uh, sort of universally agree that addicts are always addict, and that there's a high risk of relapse, and and relapse is a crime, and therefore unreasonable risk of danger to public safety. So there's a wide variety of legal definitions of what that phrase means. And I don't mean to be stepping on court's discretion, um, meaning uh, a trial court should have discretion to decide, uh, is this person within my discretion risk to commit a violent crime? And that's fully within the discretion of the fact-finding uh, trial court. But we should have a, a uniform definition of what is the underlying standard, meaning is it risk to commit a violent crime, risk to commit a drug crime, risk to commit a property crime. So we are presenting this issue in the lower courts of appeal. It's you know percolating its way up. Okay, if not Prop, if not Prop 47, then what is it? Um, and I think that there's decent case law from the parole context, which is similar language, not identical, that says it should be risk to commit a violent crime. We'll see if that pans out. So that's uh, the second answer. And the third is that in some ways, Proposition 57, which was just passed by the um, governor in his past election, I, I think let me just pause first of all and say, like, it's noteworthy that in the past, you know, three uh, general election cycles, the voters of California have, have consistently voted to reduce sentences, especially for nonviolent offenders, and that this Supreme Court decision really kind of is against that political tide. But that notwithstanding, Proposition 57 includes a provision that says that nonviolent uh, prisoners, all nonviolent prisoners, shall have an opportunity for early parole um, 
which is, is not quite Proposition 36, right? Uh, you would go before a parole proceeding rather than in court, but it would include the same group of people. Unfortunately, the CDCR just last week issued, or earlier this week, issued uh, regulations excluding three strikers from that very uh, parole process, even though it says all um, nonviolent uh, prisoners. So that was, you know, one way that would have been in some ways a quasi fix to this problem, meaning that the nonviolent three strikers who were being shut out of Proposition 36 would have a chance to go before the parole board to make its case. Uh, and But unfortunately, this week, the, the governor's office or the CECR um, issued regulations against that. And that's something that we will also be looking to challenge uh in court, as well as during a notice and comment period, which is about to kick off. Another state high court decision, this one a unanimous ruling in Texas, surprised many by suggesting that lower courts could narrowly construe the U.S. Supreme Court's same-sex marriage ruling from 2015, Obergefell v. Hodges, such as to exclude same-sex spouses from receiving certain benefits that accrue to spouses in heterosexual marriages, such as the city-provided workplace health insurance coverage. Dale Carpenter, professor at SMU Dedman School of Law, explains the procedure. So this was, you know, an interlocutory appeal from a decision some time ago by the Court of Appeals below, which had sent the case back to the trial court, instructing the trial court uh, to consider the case in light of Obergefell versus Hodges and also the Fifth Circuit's decision um, in De Leon versus Perry, which um, held that the Texas Defensive Marriage Act was unconstitutional. So the uh, activists who sued in this case, who wanted the city not to provide the benefits, sought this interlocutory re- uh, review in the Texas Supreme Court, uh, requesting that the Texas Supreme Court instruct the trial court that it should narrowly construe Obergefell, and also uh, clarifying that the lower court was not, in fact, bound by De Leon versus Perry, the Fifth Circuit decision on the Texas DOMA. And while, as Carpenter explains, the Texas High Court did not specifically instruct the lower court to read Obergefell narrowly, it opened the door for them to do so, while also remaining agnostic, surprisingly in Carpenter's view, as to the constitutionality of Texas's Defense of Marriage Act. While it did not formally instruct the lower court to narrowly construe Obergefell, um, it did in fact suggest that the Obergefell decision by itself really is a very narrow decision that only requires a state to issue a license to a same-sex couple, a, a, a marriage certificate, a piece of paper, and to formally and I think a bit abstractly recognize that marriage for which there is a license. It does not, by itself, the court suggested, require any additional action on the part of the government to provide equal benefits or to, to ensure equal rights for same-sex married couples. So that's one thing. Now, the court didn't say that 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 meant that the uh, that you couldn't read Obergefell more broadly, but this Supreme Court was not willing to do so on this occasion. The other thing that's notable, and I thought actually was maybe the most notable thing about the opinion, is that the Texas Supreme Court was unwilling simply to come out and say that the Texas Defense of Marriage Act and its parallel ordinance in Houston, which defined marriage as the union of one man and one woman, was unwilling to say that those provisions are unconstitutional. And that's puzzling, I think, to many of us because the Obergefell decision involved 
appeals from states that had their own DOMA acts that the court said were unconstitutional as a violation of the fundamental right to marry. Um, and the Texas law is substantially identical to the laws that were struck down in those cases. So there's no doubt that the Texas DOMA is unconstitutional under Obergefell, but the Texas Supreme Court was unwilling to say so. One reason this decision surprised Carpenter and others is that Obergefell involved a number of petitioners fighting over not licensing and recognition, but concrete benefits associated with marriage, thus making the Obergefell decision, as Carpenter says, an unpersuasive authority for the distinction the Texas High Court tries to draw in this case. In fact, some of the Obergefell plaintiffs, um, these were consolidated cases from four states. Some of the plaintiffs in those cases were already, in fact, married and validly legally married in other states, and they only wanted certain benefits within their state. They weren't asking for, say, Tennessee to issue them a marriage license. They were asking for the benefits that come with marriage, and the Supreme Court specifically mentioned those repeatedly in the decision and in the recent Pavan case um, involving the Arkansas uh, birth certificate controversy. Uh, the court reaffirmed that. So there were benefits at stake in those cases. The Supreme Court explicitly mentioned them. And the interesting thing is the Texas Supreme Court simply announces its view that Obergefell by itself only grants a license and abstract recognition. It doesn't explain why it has adopted this view. And I can't really see a good reason why this ought to be the view given what was at stake in Obergefell. As to the DOMA question, Carpenter does identify one potential legal basis for the court's ruling, but as he says, it's a shaky one. The first thing to be very clear about is that the only legal basis for conceivably denying benefits to um, validly married uh, couples in Houston would be that the city of Houston has an ordinance and the state of Texas has a constitutional amendment and a statute on the books, as they say, that prohibit the recognition of same-sex marriages. Now, those are DOMA laws. And so the, the, the activists in this case who were trying to get the city to stop paying benefits uh, argued that the Texas laws themselves were not in front of the court in Obergefell. They were only the laws of Tennessee, Kentucky, Ohio, and Michigan. And so the Texas statutes themselves had not been, as we say, struck down. Um, and that's true. I mean, the Texas laws never reached the Supreme Court. And the reason they never reached the Supreme Court is that while Obergefell went to the Supreme Court, the Texas laws were also being challenged in this uh, other litigation called De Leon versus Perry in the federal court. And after Obergefell came down, the federal courts immediately decided, the, the district court and then the Fifth Circuit affirmed, immediately decided that the Texas DOMA laws were unconstitutional um, because it was an obvious result under Obergefell. In fact, it was so obvious that the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, declined to take the case to the Supreme Court, knowing certainly what the outcome would be, and said that the result was correct in light of Obergefell. So it's it's an interesting argument, but the argument is, number one, the Texas laws weren't in front of the court. The Texas laws never made it to the Supreme Court, so there's been no definitive ruling. And also, Texas state courts are not bound 
by the decisions of lower federal courts, which is the case. Um, Texas courts aren't bound by them. They're persuasive, perhaps, but they're not bound by them. It would only be a United States Supreme Court decision that could bind them. And the Texas Supreme Court noted these things in its decision and said, well, you know, the Supreme Court hasn't struck down the the Texas law, and the Fifth Circuit uh, doesn't bind the court, so let's send this back to the trial court and uh, have this reviewed further and then see what happens. But in an article for the Washington Post, Carpenter notes that a Texas Supreme Court from a couple of generations ago summarily and disdainfully dismissed identical rationale presented by petitioners championing Texas's school segregation regime, even after the Watershed Brown versus Board of Education decision deemed such regimes unconstitutional. A year after Brown versus Board of Education came down, the Texas Supreme Court decided a case called McKinney versus Blankenship, in which the argument was made to them that Texas state courts, in this case, were not bound by Brown versus Board of Education because Texas's own laws regarding segregation were not in front of the Supreme Court in Brown. In other words, the, the, the theory was that only if the Supreme Court pronounced a verdict on specifically on Texas's laws could we say that the Texas courts were then bound. The Texas Supreme Court said, and I'm quoting, that that argument was so utterly without merit that we overrule it without further discussion. And what's interesting is the Texas Supreme Court actually cited that precedent in the Pigeon decision that just came down last week and then just completely ignored the impact, I think, of that uh, decision. The the court, um, I think, should have taken a very close look at and decided that it was obvious that the Texas DOMA was unconstitutional and been willing to say so, even on an interlocutory review like uh, this one. Um, and the, there should be no question in the lower courts in Texas that the Texas Defense of Marriage Act is unconstitutional after Obergefell. Now, the Texas lower courts are free to come to that determination by themselves. I expect that they will do so. I hope that they will do so. Um but there really should not be any doubt about it, and the Texas Supreme Court seems to have left room for doubt about this. Though Carpenter contends Obergefell did not did not leave open the sorts of questions the Texas High Court now says it did, he does say that other legal issues orbiting same-sex marriage do remain unresolved. It, it is the case. I mean, the, one of the things the Texas Supreme Court noted in its opinion, which is correct, is that Obergefell obviously didn't decide every controversy that might arise that is in some way relevant to marriage and specifically to the issues of same-sex marriage. There are going to be cases at the periphery um, that haven't been decided by Obergefell or by its central holding or reasoning, and I think one of those is the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, which is not a case that involves either the recognition of same-sex marriages or state-granted benefits to married same-sex couples on an equal basis. It doesn't involve either one of those things. Instead, it involves the claimed rights of private parties who say that they have First Amendment rights not to serve, in that case, a same-sex couple uh, who wanted a cake for their wedding. And that, I think, Obergefell um, 
has a bearing on that dispute, but it doesn't resolve that dispute. It has a lot of separate independent issues involved. But this case of Pigeon really is not a matter that is open after Obergefell. The question of equality for same-sex couples and the benefits they receive is not an open question. And I think the Supreme Court resolved, really reaffirmed that principle in Pavan, the Arkansas birth certificate case that it decided a few days before the Texas Supreme Court issued its opinion. As Carpenter referred to, SCOTUS did just recently summarily deny review in a similarly themed case where same-sex parents were denied the benefit of having their names included on their children's birth certificates. Three justices dissented from that summary denial, but Carpenter says the dissenters' dispute did not, as Texas's ruling did, relate to the constellation of benefits insured by Obergefell. It's not over the basic principle that Obergefell requires that equal marital benefits be provided to same-sex couples. That wasn't the basis for their dissent. The basis for their dissent was instead that they believed the birth certificate system in Arkansas was one that was designed based on the, bio- the biological parents, and it's the biological parents who should be listed on a birth certificate, and that marriage did not determine that issue in Arkansas. Now, the majority disagreed, um, but again, the disagreement was not over the core issue certainly not over any issue that was even close uh, to something that was involved in providing basic city benefits to uh, same-sex spouses. The Texas case is kicked down to lower courts for now, meaning an eventual ruling on the merits, perhaps again from the state's high court, may remain a year or two away, potentially after the much-rumored about retirement of Anthony Kennedy, who authored the 5-4 Obergefell decision. Nonetheless, even were the case to meet a more conservative court, Carpenter feels confident settled law is and would remain that same-sex spouses are entitled to benefits like those at issue here. I think even if uh, there's an appointment by um, another appointment by President Trump replacing one of the justices who was in the majority in Obergefell, there's every reason to believe that the justices would and should stand by the Obergefell decision and that in doing so, if they apply it faithfully, there is no question that cities in Texas will have to provide equal benefits. And I would be surprised if it wasn't a summary decision of the kind that we got in the Arkansas case. U.S. Supreme Court has just begun its summer recess, leaving court watchers to ruminate over the last term and ponder what the next will bring. Adam Winkler, constitutional law professor at UCLA School of Law and author of the book Gunfight, The Battle Over the Right to Bear Arms in America, joins us now to highlight a trend he's noticed over the past several SCOTUS terms in which democratically appointed justices have, in many instances, driven the court's more business-friendly jurisprudence. Professor, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. You wrote a, a post-mortem of sorts in the Washington Post uh, for October term 2016, focused on a specific issue, that of, of business cases, cases involving corporate defendants. And I suppose it's not uh, terribly surprising to to read in your article that the term was fairly business-friendly, but you point to a more surprising um, reason for it, that being that uh, liberal justices or justices perceived as left of, of center politically uh, sort of drove that business-friendly trend this term. Tell me about that. Well, we might think that when business interests are successful before the nation's highest court, that it's due to a conservative majority uh, of Republican appointees, and the Republican Party is more business-friendly generally than the Democratic Party. And so we might expect that 
um, uh, that that's the reason why we see business-friendly decisions coming from the Supreme Court. But, of course, the court over this past year was divided pretty evenly with four liberals and four conservatives just until the last month of the term when Neil Gorsuch was finally confirmed. Uh, yet the notoriously ideologically divided justices really came together this term uh, in cases involving business. And it was liberal justices like Stephen Breyer and Elena Kagan and Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Sonia Sotomayor who wrote some of the biggest decisions helping business this term. And if you look at the general vote breakdown of the business cases this year, um, nearly all of them were either unanimous or decided by a seven-to-one vote. Perhaps unpacking a few of the specific cases that you cite to illustrate this point, wherein liberal justices will either write majority opinions for or, or vote on the majority side of cases favoring business interests. Um, one is, is Midland funding versus Johnson involving the enforcement of, of stale claims brought during bankruptcy proceedings. One involves arbitration involving uh, nursing home residents being harder for those residents to get out of. Um, one involves uh, appellate jurisdiction involving um, decisions against class certification, the Microsoft v. Baker case, and uh, SEC ruling limiting uh, the ability of the SEC to, to bring claims against folks. Um, walk me through perhaps a couple of those and, and where the liberal justices fell uh, in, in those opinions. Well, you know, just for instance, you mentioned the case that um, makes it easier for debt collectors uh, to file stale claims um, that are really totally legally unenforceable, but nonetheless are filed because they hope that someone in bankruptcy might nonetheless pay the claim uh, in the matter of course. Um, that decision was written by Stephen Breyer. Some of the other liberals did dissent from that decision. But Elena Kagan, for instance, who is uh, the only one of the four liberal justices on the court who was not endorsed by the Chamber of Commerce, but who nonetheless still votes about more than 50% of the time in favor of the Chamber of Commerce, she wrote the opinion uh, in one of the big arbitration cases, making it harder to bring uh, arbitra uh, sorry, forcing people into arbitration. Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote the, uh, one of the opinions in one of the big class action cases, making it harder for class classes to pursue their class action cases. Um, and Sonia Sotomayor wrote the opinion in uh, a big securities fraud case that made it harder for um, the SEC to disgorge money from people who defraud investors. That variable, the preference of the, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, is something that you cite in your piece as indicative, obviously, of which position in the case is more or less business-friendly. And you note that the U.S. Chamber of Commerce weighed in pretty frequently this term and had its position vindicated uh, almost as often, right? That's right. The Chamber filed amicus briefs in 15 cases this term uh, and won 12 of those cases uh, with only three losses. Uh, and uh, that's a very, very good success rate, uh, of course, for the Chamber of Commerce, although not that unique. Um, we've seen in previous years uh, that the Chamber of Commerce has proven to be one of the most successful advocates before the Supreme Court. Um, I looked at uh, the Chamber's success rate over the past six terms, uh, and there's been 87 cases where the chamber filed an amicus brief, and the chamber won 65 of those cases, 74% of the cases. So we really see a long-term um, string of success for the Chamber of Commerce in the current Supreme Court. What do you think is the principal explanation for that, and specifically having liberal justices more sympathetic towards the arguments of business defendants, um, considering that by and large folks might think that folks on, on the left of center would be more sympathetic to uh, consumer claims or the, the claims of the, the little guy. 
Well, there's no doubt that part of the reason why the court rules in favor of business interests is because of the conservative justices. There's a strong body of conservative justices on the Supreme Court, and studies show um, that they are, uh, among them, are the most business-friendly justices that have served on the Supreme Court dating back to uh, World War II and the New Deal era. Uh, in fact, Justice Samuel Alito uh, is considered the most business-friendly justice ever to sit on the Supreme Court, uh, at least according to uh, studies that have measured that. Um, and so we have uh, conservative justices who are business-friendly, but we also have liberal justices who are business-friendly. You know, one sign of where the Democratic Party is today is uh, the Supreme Court nominees that they get confirmed, that the Democratic presidents when they nominate someone, those reflect the kind of the philosophy of a, pol of a political party uh, in some ways. And what we see is that the last two Democratic presidents have had four justices confirmed to the Supreme Court. And as I mentioned earlier, three of the four were endorsed by the Chamber of Commerce. Um, and, and what you have is uh, Democratic presidents appointing liberal justices who are liberal on a bunch of big social issues, but uh, have are not really focused on issues of income inequality uh, and issues of poverty in the way, say, that progressive justices were 50 or 60 years ago. It's a fairly salient point to make after this past uh, general election and proceeding at the Democratic primary, where that point was really at the forefront, whether or to what extent the Democratic platform should be held up by planks of economic equality and, and sort of more populist messages. Um, and of course, the proponent of those, Bernie Sanders, lost the, the primary. But um, that seems to just be another manifestation of this uh, political realities uh, here that you, that you describe. Well, I think that's right, and one of the reasons why I was inspired to write this piece was not to engage in the debate over whether the Democratic Party should go one way or another, um, but to really see the impact of a Democratic Party that has forsaken those traditional issues of income inequality and economic justice. Um, uh, that what you get is a Democratic Party that's really good on things like civil rights and affirmative action and criminal justice reform, but not necessarily so good on issues relating to business regulation, and how do we protect the little guy from being trampled by big business? You know, I looked mostly at the Chamber of Commerce cases, but even in cases where the Chamber did not file this term, and you just had businesses on one side, and individuals or government agencies on the other side, uh, businesses uh, won 75% of those cases. Um, uh, we do really see um, justices that are not as concerned as, say, Justice Hugo Black or Justice William Douglas, two FDR appointees, um, who really made uh, it a point to try to read the law broadly to protect consumers and workers and the little guy. Perhaps uh, of the two general election candidates, maybe it's fair to say that, that Donald Trump had the more populist message uh, railing against you know, Hillary Clinton's Goldman Sachs speeches and, and the like, but I, I don't imagine that anyone thinks that his SCOTUS nominee and uh, confirmed Justice Neil Gorsuch is going to be particularly friendly to uh, consumers and actions against businesses, right? Well, we don't expect that to be the case. That wasn't his record when he was on the Tenth Circuit. Um, uh, we we don't, haven't seen him rule on the Supreme Court in business cases yet, in significant business cases yet, so we yeah. still have some time to go. Um, but yeah, one would expect that although Donald Trump did have a populist message, he hasn't been running a populist presidency. Uh, and I doubt that his future Supreme Court appointments, should he get any, uh, would reflect a kind of uh, economic populism uh, of the sort that uh, was associated with a William Douglas or a Hugo Black. 
if uh, consumer rights versus business rights, if that dichotomy does not divide the court along liberal and conservative lines, what, what are the, the principal and salient points of division within the court now? Well, we know that the Supreme Court is very ideologically divided on issues like uh, the scope of unenumerated rights, the scope of the right to marry, or the scope of the right to choose abortion. Um, those are issues that very, very seriously divide the court and have divided the court for many years. The court also tends to have very different views of federalism uh, and the scope of executive power. I think we're going to see increasing splits in the Supreme Court uh, on issues of, for instance, uh, discretion to administrative agencies, with the liberals saying we should be deferring and conservatives pushing for less deference. We also see pretty big difference in issues like uh, access to court. Um, we've seen uh, many of uh, the liberal justices fighting to have better access to court uh, so that individuals can sue government uh, agencies. Um, but uh, we've seen some scaling back of um, the ability to sue government officers, including a very important decision this term um, uh, that scaled back Bivens' claims uh, made it much more difficult for people to sue state officials who violate federal constitutional rights. Just looking forward, if you had to try to think about any particular issues in terms of either business interests against consumers or sort of bigger, more powerful interests against sort of the little guy interests, what are maybe the outstanding questions that might confront the, this court as, as it goes forward the next few terms? Well, I think it's, uh, increasingly we're going to see more and more issues about um, uh, class actions and about the ability of people to bring class action suits. Um, we've seen that the court has um, raised the bar for class action suits, so more and more companies are um, challenging class actions in innovative and new ways uh, because they see that the court is generally hostile to uh, these kinds of lawsuits. Um, so you might see increasingly uh, things along those lines. I also think we're going to see, for instance, next term, a big high-profile case dealing with the rights of businesses, um, but not necessarily phrased in quite those terms, which is going to be the, the case dealing with um, uh, the Colorado um, wedding cake maker who refused to bake a cake for a same-sex couple. And this is one of these really interesting issues where it presents uh, does a business that's generally open to all and subject to public accommodations law um, have a, a right to refuse service to people based on the owners of that business's religious beliefs? Uh, we've already seen the court say in Hobby Lobby that uh, in a similar situation that uh, a big business can refuse to provide comprehensive birth control on the basis of the business owner's religious beliefs. Um, and so we might see uh, this term um, uh, an expansion of the ability of businesses to pick and choose the laws they're going to it is always interesting when those issues present coincidentally, um, you know, rights of businesses, but sort of also clothed and, and mixing in religious rights as well. It makes it kind of hard to pick out exactly um, which one the court is advancing, and oftentimes it can sort of advance both with really using the justification of advancing one. That's right. If we take a case like Hobby Lobby, I think it was really uh, pushed by the justices' sentiment about um, the religious beliefs of Hobby Lobby's owners. I don't think it was. I don't think they focused on it as specifically a business case, um, but nonetheless, we still see that same kind of sympathy for a business when you're willing to um, sort of quickly uh, expand the idea of religious freedom to business corporations. Uh, it's a controversial move, um, perhaps a reasonable one given federal law, but a controversial one. Um, it probably suggests at least some inclination to see businesses as deserving of 
the special protection of the Supreme Court. That's one of the interesting things we see when we think about the court. You know, we think about the court as a protection for minorities against the tyranny of the majority. Um, but the minorities that have often received the most protection from the court historically have been business interests, business interests fighting against populist legislation designed to regulate businesses in the public interest. One thing seems certain now that we have a full cohort of justices, we'll certainly hear some big cases like the Cake Shop one from Colorado. Um, and so we'll look forward to those for now, Professor Adam Winkler from UCLA. Also, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you again for having me. In terms that lack a large number of major cases, this last one arguably did, Professor John Eastman, Chapman University Fowler School of Law, says that justices often use the less consequential cases to stake out their positions and create some useful reference points for bigger cases coming down the pike. Professor Eastman is here now to help us find and analyze such anticipatory posturing in this past term's rulings and what they might signal for major immigration law matters on the docket for October term 2017. Professor, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I guess first, when you're talking about this sort of anticipatory posturing, I assume you're referring to kind of dicta the justices want to create when they have in mind some case they're probably going to hear in the future so that then they can kind of rely on their on their own dicta? I, I think that's right. You'll see it in dicta in the case. You'll see it in uh, particular wording and how a, a holding is phrased. You'll see it uh, make its appearance in little explanatory footnotes that maybe aren't really necessary to the particular holding in the case. But uh, might uh, uh, lay some markers for how the court's thinking about the big case that they know is coming down the pike. One example of that you give, uh, among a few here, is uh, the case of Ziegler versus Abbasi decided towards the end of this past term. The uh, the sort of head note holding could just be that uh, Bivens remedies were not available to the parties here, uh, folks alleging constitutional violations against federal officials after 9-11. But you say that Justice Kennedy goes on in his majority opinion to kind of lay out a few more points that aren't crucial to the decision, right? Well, they're not crucial to the decision. And and the Supreme Court um, uh, in the last 30 years has been very stingy about extending Bivens remedies. And all it could, you know, an opinion could have read um, something like we've never applied Bivens in this context, and as is consistent with our, our practice in recent years, uh, uh, we're not going to extend Bivens here either. Um, but then Justice Kennedy launches into a fairly uh, comprehensive uh, analysis of separation of powers uh, principles and the primacy of national security questions, uh, the authority vested in the president, uh, to the point that it's almost beyond review by the courts. Uh, and so that's that's rather stark. And and if you if you look at it just standalone, it's more explanation for why they're not giving a Bivens remedy than they've provided in the past. Um, uh, but if you look at it in the context of the upcoming um, case involving uh, President Trump's immigration orders, uh, then it's a rather significant bit of explanation. Obviously, that that sort of thread could be woven into an opinion on that future case talking about national security considerations. But you also say that Justice Kennedy throws in a few caveats uh, when he makes this uh, discursion, perhaps a bit of a jurisprudential hedging on on his party. He mentions that the uh, separation of powers aren't necessarily so discreet uh, when these questions come up. Well, that, that is. And Justice Kennedy was the author of uh, uh, the opinion in Boumediene versus Bush, which dealt with the kind of uh, uh, reviews that needed to be provided before the president t- kept um, 
uh, alleged terrorists at our uh, detention facility in Guantanamo Bay. And that's particularly significant because here the exercise of, you know, the treatment of prisoners of war, uh, where you're going to place them, under what terms, is vintage commander-in-chief power. And in this particular case, it was also bolstered by statutory authority from Congress that not only set out the specific mechanism for determining uh, who should be uh, detained in Guantanamo Bay and who was accidentally detained there, um, but specifically revoked the jurisdiction of the court to consider those questions, uh, something that Congress is allowed to do uh, under the Constitution. And Justice Kennedy's uh, in opinion in Boumediene ignored both of those <laughs> longstanding uh, limitations on judicial review of national security and war powers decisions. And so his caveat there in the Abbasi case, um, I think, uh, is a is a reference uh, to, to, in his view, the need to supervise uh, those decisions that our Constitution largely vests in other branches of the government. Seems like giving himself some some room on either side of potential ruling in, in the Trump uh, versus Iraq right. decision. We've, we've, we've now got we've now got set out there in that same opinion, uh, whichever direction he wants to go, if he's the deciding vote. Certainly a, a possibility with this court, as, as always. Um, there's a couple other decisions that you, you get into uh, from this past term. One, Esquivel-Quintana for Sessions, and one, Maslinjak for the United States. Hopefully I got in the ballpark of those pronunciations. Uh, in, in each of these, you have justices on either side of the ideological spectrum, Justice Thomas and Justice Kagan, get into some pretty specific statutory interpretation uh, language. Tell me a bit about these cases and what the importance is of the uh, the rulings here in terms of future cases. Sure, and, it, and if you're looking at this kind of the, the techno- tectonic importance of uh, the addition of Neil Gorsuch to the bench, uh, right out of the box, his very first oral argument, uh, he pointedly asked attorneys on both sides of the case where their argument was tied to the various uh, statutory provisions that were at issue in the cases. And both of them um, fumbled a little bit on answering those questions. And so here you get, again, in the immigration context, a couple of cases that would probably not be of significant impact beyond the parties to the case, um, of Justice Thomas in the one and Justice Kagan in the other, doing very close textual analysis of what the statute required. Now, why is this so relevant? Well, this return to strict uh, attention to the statutory text rather than the various balancing tests and goals and purposes that we might infer from Congress's uh, statutory intent, uh, looking at the actual text was, is, is rather significant. And if you then again look at it in the context of the upcoming uh, decision on, on, the, on the Trump immigration orders, there are very clear statutory texts that gives the president pretty much unfettered discretion to do what he did here. Anytime the president determines that, that um, suspension or denial of admission to a class of aliens is necessary for the national interest in the United States, he has the ability to do that under this very clear statutory text. And so this back and forth on the meaning, the you know precise meaning of statutory text is um, kind of setting down some markers on how people are going to visit that question when it comes back to them next fall in, in the very high-profile case. Also because I understand there is another statute potentially bearing on the situation as well, which seems to cast a bit of doubt as to how plenary that power is. Well, that's right. So so we have the original statutory tax unambiguously given the president authority. That was adopted in 1952. We have an amendment to the Immigration Acts in 1965 that includes a provision prohibiting discrimination on, on the basis of, among other things, national origin uh, in the issuance of visas. 
and and those two statutes appear to be in some conflict if you look at them at a at a quick surface level. But if you really dig down into them, look at the precise meaning of the words as as these these decisions decided this term suggests we ought to be doing. Um, then there's really no incompatibility between those two statutes. Uh, the prohibition on discrimination on the issuance of visas doesn't say anything about the president's national security power under the other statute to deny admission to a whole class of aliens uh, if he deems it necessary for our national interest. Uh, denying admission is different than issuing a visa. A visa doesn't guarantee you admission, although it's a necessary uh, precondition for it. So, so again, grappling with the statutory text and resolving what might at first blush appear to be an inconsistency turns out not to be so if I look at it very precisely uh, and comprehensively. To finish up, you also say there's some hints that can be gleaned here um, from a term where a few issues were kind of either ducked or, or just put off altogether. One case, Hernandez versus Mesa, you say the court sort of punted on a constitutional question. This involved a, a non-U.S. citizen shot at the border, but not on U.S. territory by a border patrol agent from the U.S. side. And then two cases, Jennings, Jennings versus Rodriguez and Sessions versus DeMaia, which were argued early in the term, but then pushed off for, for next term. So what, what are the, the decisions or lack of decisions in, this, in these cases show us? So the, the, the unanimous decision Hernandez per curiam by the court, uh, uh, I mean, not unanimous, but there were a couple of dissenting opinions, but they ducked the, the main constitutional question, which is whether somebody outside the borders of the United States has Fourth or Fifth Amendment constitutional rights uh, that are applicable to people in the United States. Um, and, they, and they didn't answer that question. They sent it back to the lower court for further uh, consideration. Uh, and then the the other two cases, uh, the the court set for re-argument next term, which strongly suggests that the court was equally divided four to four on those cases, and that Judge Gorsuch, the just now Justice Gorsuch, will be the deciding vote once those cases are re-argued. And again, uh, here you have, um, I mean, if you if you look at the tea leaves, right, you've got a, a four-four vote with Justice Kennedy siding with the other conservatives. And the four liberals on the other side, that's the, the presumptive 4-4 split one has. Justice Gorsuch weighing in on that from what we've already seen from his two first two months on the bench. One would presume he would side with the conservative side of that split. And that probably uh, is pretty good news for the Trump administration on its implementation of immigration policy. Seems a, a safe possibility. One thing is certain, we're, we're definitely uh, going to get some more impactful and major immigration cases going forward now at the a Nine Justice Court. So we'll look forward to that. For now, Professor John Eastman from Chapman University Fowler School of Law. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you very much. And with that, our show for July 7th, 2017 is complete. Thanks very much for tuning in. And don't forget that one hour of CLE credit can be yours for tuning in. Thanks again to all my guests. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.